From VT Digger, this is The Deeper Dig. I'm Riley Robinson. Last week, the state shut down its COVID-19 testing sites. These sites had been operating for more than two years and were one of the most visible pieces of the state government's COVID response. So it feels in some way like we're closing a chapter on this phase of the pandemic. But it's not like all the big changes that popped up in the spring of 2020, with the empty store shelves with no toilet paper and the long lines for testing and all of the wacky homemade PPE people were wearing in those early weeks. This is quieter, a sort of fizzling out. I talked to VT Digger's data reporter, Aaron Patenko, about how our information about the pandemic has changed. Over the past couple years, Aaron's done a lot of analysis on the state's COVID data. She also created that pink line chart of daily case counts that's lived on our website for the past couple years. I could probably draw that line in the case data pretty precisely if you challenged me to. Is it like burned into your brain permanently? Okay. Yeah. This week's COVID data summary from the Vermont Department of Health is the first report since the state wound down its testing sites. So even though Vermont had low COVID-19 levels for the fourth straight week in a row, the data comes with a major caveat. It represents far fewer COVID tests than before. The data that we were getting before, how reliable was that? And like, does this seem significantly different in any way? Compared to... Last week, I don't know if it's going to make a huge amount of difference just because the data was so unreliable. Compared to six months ago, it's a a pretty massive difference. I mean, I used to be able to say not only pretty reliably how many COVID cases there were each day, but also where they were, what age group was getting sick the most, um, how Vermont was being affected on like a daily basis rather than just like on a weekly or monthly basis. And, you know, our ability to to kind of tell those things is increasingly being lost. I can I can barely even really say anymore, you know, whether people getting sick are vaccinated or unvaccinated. Um, You know, that's obviously the effectiveness of vaccines is is being measured by scientists, not by Aaron Patanko. But I used to be able to at least look at the data and say, oh, yeah, and X percent of the cases this week were among vaccinated Vermonters. And that's not really a reliable metric anymore at all. I would say what's changed fundamentally is that we no longer have this data that we can use to interpret and make decisions because we're not really making many decisions about the virus anymore, right? You know, we have data that kind of can work as an indicator to public health practitioners or to hospitals of, are they about to see a big surge in cases? But the kind of precise metrics that we would need to know things like when to impose mass measures and when to take them off are no longer being tracked. You know, we have indicators, we have suggestions, we have ways of seeing how bad it has been, but not necessarily how bad it will be, that kind of stuff seems to be kind of replacing the data sets that we had in in the past. How does the CDC calculate whether an area is high, medium, or low risk, especially right now that this information 
is maybe a little bit more unclear. Yeah. The the State Department of Health only puts out like a state level summary. They don't do county level, but they they have a very similar metric to the CDC, which is they have the COVID-19 community levels as low, medium, or high. Their determination of what category a place is is based on three factors. The rate per capita of COVID cases within the community, the percentage of hospital patients who have COVID, and the number of new hospitalizations or new people showing up to hospitals with COVID. And this is a a metric that the CDC transitioned to in February of 2021 because they openly said case data is not as reliable as it used to be. We need to kind of capture a metric that reflects the fact that we are using antigen tests more and the fact that, um, you know, Omicron and variants of Omicron are a lot less severe than previous strains. So hospitalizations are what really matters. So tell me about wastewater data. Like what tools are available now for just knowing what's going on with COVID and what towns are using wastewater data in Vermont? So in the most recent surveillance update from the Department of Health, they have data from Brighton, Troy J, which is kind of a combined one, and Burlington. But Burlington's been reporting data since very early on, like before even the CDC had started collecting wastewater data. But Beddington, Essex Junction, Johnson, Morrisville, Newport, Springfield, St. Albans, St. Johnsbury, Winooski, they're all on this list of providing data to the National Wastewater Surveillance System, but they don't actually have any data. I've even talked to the Department of Health about this, and they're not really sure why they're not reporting data, Uh, but I've just reached out to a bunch of towns to try to track down the reasons for that. I will also say what wastewater data is useful for understanding like at a basic level, but we're not going to know what's the daily case count, who's getting infected, how many direct hospitalizations is this going to translate to, our ICU is going to get overwhelmed from wastewater data. Wastewater data is kind of like how how hard is it raining outside right now? Like you're you're going to be able to tell the difference between a drizzle and a downpour, but you're not going to say how many raindrops exactly are going to fall into your roof. You've been talking with higher risk folks about how they're dealing with this phase of the pandemic and how they're approaching it. Has this data collection bit come up as part of that conversation? How important do you think this is? Yeah, my my impression of talking to high risk people is they tend to pay very close attention to the data to the point where, you know, a lot of them are practically data becoming data scientists or data journalists themselves because they really want to understand it as well as they can to protect themselves. Um, until we kind of lost a lot of, of information, now there is kind of a level of distrust in the data because we're not collecting as much data as we used to, we're not publishing as much data as we used to, and the way that we publish that data has changed a lot to kind of be more geared towards epidemiologists and less towards everyday Vermonters just trying to understand their personal risk level. I also called Dr. Trey Dobson to ask him about what's changed. Dr. Dobson, hello. 
Hey, Riley, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for, for jumping on. I heard you were running over from the emergency department. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I just walked in here. So you got to give me a second to like get out of seeing patients mode and get into being... Dr. Dobson is the chief medical officer at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center in Bennington. And he's also an emergency medicine physician. The last time I saw him was back in December in the thick of the winter surge. I was reporting on how the rise in cases impacted rural hospitals. And Dr. Dobson walked me around his emergency department, which at that time had several patients very sick from COVID. What's that? And you can see this woman's oxygenation is not good. That woman's oxygenation is not good. But you can see all these people's oxygen is low. See, they're on oxygen too. So she's got oxygen in her nose and her oxygen is still, you should be at 100%. Both these people are 90%. What number What does your emergency department look like today? Well, I just got out of my emergency department today. Um, we are seeing patients in higher volumes than uh, prior to the pandemic, and it is likely due to a variety of reasons. What we're not seeing are lots of sick people with COVID-19, which is uh, fantastic, and it's most assuredly due to um, the protection that we have garnered through both vaccination and prior infections. Uh, as you know, in January through March, about half the country probably was infected with COVID-19. And even though these new variants like the B4 and 5 variant that are now the most dominant variants are able to evade prior infection, they're not able to cause severe illness. So we're not seeing lots of people represent to the hospital uh, sick. Do you have folks in your ICU today with COVID? You know, I would have to just look on our board real quick, uh, but on any given day, uh, we have uh, a few people in the hospital between two and six that have COVID-19, and some of those may be in the ICU. Certainly the older vulnerable population are who winds up in hospitals these days. Mm-hmm. How does this, how does it compare to December? Uh, well, certainly less numbers of people in the hospital and they are staying for a less of a duration. In other words, um, they're not requiring six and and eight day stays or typically requiring three and four day stays. And when did you start noticing a change? Like when did things start to ease off for you all? Our hospitalizations have been quite steady for, you know, probably three months at least. Let's see if I can calculate that out right. Um, March, April, May, June. Yeah, about three months. Our hospitalizations have been low and steady between two and six patients in the hospital. Southwestern Vermont Medical Center ended PCR testing for the general public last week. The hospital's testing center collected more than 110,000 swabs in the past year and a half. To, to jump a little bit, when did hospital leaders start talking about winding down PCR testing? And what, was that driven by, mostly by the funding? Was it driven by caseloads? What was the, the planning like there? You know, if you look at the... Um, graphs of cases uh, in the newspaper around the country or in Vermont, and it goes up and down. That's the same with discussions on should we continue testing or not? You know, they obviously we have to continue it, but if they, if the testing declines, you know, there was times in July of 2020 um, where we would have less than 10 people present to the hospital for COVID-19 testing on a given day. And you have to think, you know, is this adding value to the community to have a large scale operation where we're only seeing 10 people a day? 
So those discussions have occurred really almost throughout the pandemic. What's different today and, and the reasons that we could stand down the, the surveillance type PCR testing is again, access to self-administered tests, um, a better understanding among society on how to interpret these tests, how to handle them. And then also the virulence uh, of the disease has declined. It's certainly still deadly for those that are vulnerable, uh, but so many of us are vaccinated and or have had prior infections that right now, even these highly transmissible Omicron uh, variants are causing disease, uh, but they are not causing people to be ill enough to be in the hospital. Dr. Dobson said the hospital is still doing some PCR testing when doctors think it's necessary to find out what's happening with a patient. Broad-based testing for the general public is what's going away. We want to be careful to not be testing people who are just concerned and and want to have a PCR test. It's um, not value-added for the, the cost that not only they would incur, but the system would incur. And so it's a move from the highly costly test to a different phase of the pandemic. And it's now appropriate. By the way, it would not have been appropriate a year ago to make this move. So like many things with this pandemic, you have to look at the right time and the right situation. And I don't imagine that there will be a time where we need to return to these large scale uh, drive-through PCR testing that we were doing before. But certainly it is possible. And if that's the case, we will be ready to stand up and and get our drive through going. How much money are we talking to set up this kind of testing operation? It would depend on how, how you know the time frame you're, you're, we're talking about. But I'll just give you some examples of um, what's invested. You know, the just the materials to do the testing itself, not even the equipment, but just the materials are, are around $40 per test. Now that's a ballpark number. Um, that's pretty high right there. We're just talking about like the reagents and the supplies, uh, but not to mention buying the actual equipment. And, and I would say that the equipment itself is in the thousands to ten thousands of dollars, depending on the type of machine. We actually have several different types of machines. And then uh, there is the cost of, of staffing. So we're taking uh, nurses, in some cases physicians, but usually nurses and pharmacists and techs uh, away from their normal job and placing them to do the testing and, and vaccination. Uh, and so you'd have to just add those things up and say that it can get quite expensive. Uh, certainly it was the mission of the hospital to uh, do the best we can to maintain financial sustainability while we take care of the public. And, you know, fortunately we've been able to do that. Now, some of that again is uh, based on uh, federal stimulus and, and surplus uh, monies that were given to different organizations. So we, you know, used all of that in that way. And then there were some other means, like I talked about HRSA funds to do testing that is no longer there. HRSA, or HRSA, stands for the Health Resources and Services Administration. It's a federal agency, and it was responsible for handing out the billions of dollars in COVID funding that reimbursed hospitals for things like testing and vaccinations and treating patients who don't have health insurance. The agency stopped accepting reimbursement claims in March when it ran out of money. A deal in Congress to re-up COVID funding seems pretty much dead. In March, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced a $10 billion package to fund testing, treatment, and vaccine development. 
but then Senate Republicans said they wouldn't vote on the deal if it didn't include an extension of Title 42, which is this public health order that gives the government more leeway to turn away migrants and asylum seekers at the border. Then last month, the Biden administration moved some COVID money around and set aside $5 billion to purchase a round of new, updated vaccines if and when they become available. This prompted criticism from some Republican senators, including Mitt Romney. They basically accused the Biden administration of lying to lawmakers about what funding was needed and how much was available. Outside of Washington, this dust-up means that the COVID infrastructure that has been offered at no upfront cost to individuals will probably be absorbed more and more into the normal healthcare system, meaning people will have to pay for vaccines and treatment either through insurance or out of pocket. Do you think there's ever going to be a moment when the pandemic really feels over? Does it just sort of fizzle out? Yeah, it fizzles out this type of pandemic. It doesn't end on a particular day. Um, Of course, it has ended for many people because they started to ignore it. Uh, But for those of us in healthcare and, and others who know that the virus is still very prevalent, you know, we need to see the number of deaths per day go from 300 down to 100, which would be on par with influenza. And then it needs to be stable before we say it's no longer a pandemic, it's uh, endemic in a particular region. And by that, what I mean, there's a lot of confusion about what endemic means, but endemic really, the best way to think about it, it's a stable number of expected uh, illness. There's too many variants to developing to say we're out of a pandemic. We're not at all. Uh, the good news is that society handles it much better and the virulence appears to be declining, again, probably due to a number of factors, but particularly including uh, vaccination, which has saved, as you've read recently, the calculations, so many lives, as well as immunity developing from prior infection. And, and in many people, it's both. Uh, and that's, that's what's probably going to continue. So when there's no more state-run PCR testing coming in, or I guess our data sources have been changing, right? How do you think about that? How do you work with that? Are there other sources of information that you're looking to, to understand prevalence? Or like, how does that work now? Right. Well, it's no longer scientific. It is much more of a gestalt, you know, or or an anecdotal type uh, idea of what the prevalence of the virus is. And and it is is truly not scientific because there is no information anymore on prevalence that is reliable. Um, We happen to have done a lot of testing up until today or tomorrow. Um, But even that, most of the testing is occurring in in the homes. That's okay um, because the cost of doing this testing in society is now uh, greater than the value it adds. What is important is to look at is first off hospitalizations and second absenteeism from work and school. And that's where we're gonna get our information about how, what the prevalence of the virus is. It's important that we don't just say to someone, look, you, you have symptoms that are consistent with the virus, stay out of work without some definitive understanding of whether or not they really do because we need people to work. We need kids to not miss school. We need to be able to exist with this virus in a reasonable way. You can read more of Aaron's reporting at vtdigger.org. 
episode used music by Blue Dot Sessions. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening right now to make sure you don't miss an episode. We'll be back next week. See you then.